The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, proudly nominated for National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording live from the remote Bronx studios at Ryder University, and I'm Professor Jonathan Karp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute and the Revovich Institute for New Jersey Politics presents this program, Health 411 truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. This program communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, as, and the business, as well as the politics of health and healthcare. I am here today with our producer, Mandy McLean, and our guest, Professor Sarah Campbell from Rutgers University. Dr. Campbell is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Rutgers, and she is an expert in exercise and the gut microbiome. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Good morning, Dr. Karp. Thank you for having me, and Mandy as well. Hello. It is it's a pleasure having you here. For people who are listening to put this conversation in context, you tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, well, my, my background started some time ago. I um, got interested in an exercise science a lot because I was an athlete, and I think that that's probably a very familiar story when you talk to a lot of your um, majors in exercise science. So I was a soccer player. I started playing when I was five, and I didn't stop until I blew out a knee in my mid-20s. Um, and so, you know, I got to college, and I was recruited to play um, in college at Bloomsburg University, and originally was in uh, PT, like many of the majors. When I, when I found out there was a major called exercise science, I mean, you know, that was my nerd out moment. Ex, you know, science and exercise combined into one major, that's got to be the coolest thing. So I, I really went immediately to switch my majors and then the rest is history. You know, I completed my undergrad at Bloomsburg University and stayed on to work with Dr. Linda Lemura in my, um, for my master's degree. In between my master's and my PhD, I spent about six or seven months at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York, working with many of the winter sports teams, in particular, the U.S. women's ice hockey team. From there, I went from a really cold environment to a really warm environment down in <laughs> Tallahassee, Florida, where I was a Seminole at Florida State University um, and completed my Ph.D. there. My area of expertise was a little bit different. It was exercise, and I always say a different lumen, so I looked at the heart and cardiovascular disease and lipids and lipid proteins, enzymes and all that good stuff. And um, at the time decided that it was best for me to stay. The department at Florida State is nutrition, food and exercise science. So I did my postdoc in nutrition, same department, but different mentor. Um, and my postdoc was funded through the USDA. So it's a nice, very, um, collaboration between exercise and nutrition, because I feel like you really can't talk with 
about one without the other. So I felt it was a nice um, blend of expertise. And my first job was um, Rutgers. I applied to, to Rutgers and I, and I got that job. So it was very exciting. And I moved back home because I'm a Jersey girl originally. My brother actually spent uh, one year playing on the Ryder men's soccer team. Oh, really? So yes, he did. Yes, he did. And it just, you know, it didn't, it didn't seem to fit him. So he ended up at Rutgers. So, you know, we got the best of both worlds. He's a Ryder and a Rutgers person. And, you know, I'm talking with Ryder at Rutgers. So, you know, it's a nice little combination. Oh, there. So I'm glad you feel at least a little bit connected to our campus here. Yes, yes, it's definitely. We don't have to change what the R is on your, um, on your sweater. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that's, that's great. No. For people who are listening, um, we're going to talk about both exercise and the gut microbiome. But um, when somebody who studies exercise study, what does a scientist consider exercise? And exercise, you know, a student chasing me down the hall with a with a stick because they don't like a grade is that exercise? Like, what constitutes exercise? Right. So that's a great question because we talk about that a lot in my exercise physiology class, you know, because when you talk about, for example, resting daily energy expenditure and the components of that, they talk about, you know, physical activity exercise being a component. And I think that there is a bit of a difference between physical activity versus exercise. Physical activity would be, say, your student running or chasing down the hallway after an exam. Or as I always like to tell my students, Rutgers has a big busing system. I said, when you're late for the bus and you're running after the bus, you know, that's not necessarily exercise. That's you kind of doing what you need to do to get from point A to point B or parking further out in a mall or taking steps instead of, instead of an escalator. Um, exercise to me is a little more purposeful, right? It's, it's kind of that intentional planning of a particular type of of you know program whether it be through resistance training or high intensity interval training or aerobic exercise training and you know that's actually defined differently for human and animal models as well because i tend to to use animal models quite a bit so treadmill training and running would be more like exercise whereas you know allowing uh, the animal access to a running wheel is more analogous to kind of like the physical activity they say. You stole my thunder because uh, involuntary <laughs> wheel running on a wheel is not the same as the, the what you're what you're calling is intentional. So you headed off. Well done. I am right. That is something in the literature. And there are different kinds of exercise. And you sort of hinted on this. Some exercise um, has a movement or cardio a, a, a strong cardiovascular base. There's also isotonic exercise or resistance training. Um, What's I mean for what we're going to talk about? Are those things important, or is just exercise exercise? Right. So that's a great question. So since the exercise microbiome is in the field of microbiome a little more in its infancy compared to say general microbiome studies, which have really been around for some of the earliest studies, you know, that really kind of came out and shaped the field were in the early 2000s. I remember big papers in 2004 and 2005 that came out and they were some of the first ones talking about really diet. So high fat diets, changing the composition of the gut microbiota. 
some of the exercise papers about um, really characterizing the microbiota in response to exercise really didn't come out until 2014 and then ours with 2016. And it really has kind of grown exponentially since there. So exercise is, you know, obviously very different. A lot to date has been more looking at aerobic based exercise. So, you know, runners, marathoners, I've seen some swimming studies, you know, cycling, there are now more starting to kind of um, I'd say come out or investigators starting to think a little bit more about high intensity interval training um, or even resistance training to try and understand if those modes of exercise promote a microbiota similar to what we've seen with just this endurance or aerobic based exercise. So the, the field is, is new enough that a lot of those boundaries are still being worked out. It's, yes. It's yes. And then yeah. The other half of what you do when you put these things together is you talk about the microbiome. Can you, for our listening people, can you explain what that is? Right, right. Scientifically, so, not what it is like when you walk into like the, you know, a, a drugstore in the mall. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. So, you know, the, the microbiome is really defined as kind of the, the collection of microbes and or other archaea or viruses or so forth that are kind of present within um, really an, an area. So you really do have to say gut microbiome before you say that because it is that community that's present there um, as opposed to say the nasal microbiome or the lung microbiome. So it really is unique to each you know, organ or system so you have to be, um, you know, careful when you do that uh, to to make sure oh, that you mention that. So system. just to, to translate it, so they are what you're what we're talking about when people use the word microbiome. In people, there would be non-human cells and non-human, you know, not that viruses are cells, but non-human things right. in the gut, non-human things in the lung, in your mouth, prokaryotes, eukaryotes, like all that good stuff, right? Wherever wherever you are, right. Um, and in terms of just numbers, <laughs> there's huge numbers of these things, aren't there? Yes, 10, 10 to the 12, 10 to the 13, 10 to the, I mean, we're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of, of microbes that are present, which makes it a difficult thing to study, as you can imagine. Yeah. And in terms, those are, those are numbers that are almost unimaginable to visualize. How, does, how do they compare like, to the human cells that we have in our body? Right, so technically we have a lot more. <laughs> So, you know, the, that potential becomes greater for the gut microbiota than it does for, you know, the, the human genome in and of itself, right? Um, um, so, so that's what I think gets people really excited about exploring that potential of what it might do to help with, you know, human health. And just to put it in this perspective, because, I mean, there are people who study pure exercise. There are people who are just interested in all the microorganisms that you know humans and animals have in them you're sort of in that interdisciplinary field where you're putting these things together and how do they communicate with each other and just to sum it up because we're gonna have to take a break for some underwriting in a second the communication is bi-directional the microbes can communicate with us and then we can communicate with the microbes right can i, can I say that right yeah, you know, those are some of the major hypotheses. I think 
you know, some of that communication, you know, microbiologists call quorum sensing, right? And so, but how that communication, you know, happens is still largely explored. And in our area, and maybe something we can talk about in a bit is, is it through the metabolites that are being produced by the microbes as they metabolize their foods, for example, or what they're presented with? And then are those secreted into the systemic, you know, the body? And then do they activate on certain receptors? And, and this is how we propose that the microbiome can really help to shape how your body functions. Excellent. And we do want to hear more about that. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. We'll be right back with some more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 The Bronx. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 thebronxcom From the remote Bronx studios, you're listening to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp here with Professor Sarah Campbell from Rutgers University from the Department of Kinesiology and Health. Dr. Campbell is a, is a faculty member and research scientist who studies exercise, the gut microbiome and health. And we were at the end of the last segment uh, as a perfect segue, we, we were starting to talk about the communication between the microbes that are in us, especially her area in, in the gut, and the body. Can you tell us, and, we, and, she, and she were talking about what are some of the ways that communication might be taking place? What are some of the ideas of the kind of things that you're researching, trying to understand? Right. So, you know, what becomes a really big um, now interest and, and we know this because the funding agencies are now asking these questions of us. It's more um, developed now. We just don't want to know who is there, and that's what we call characterization. We want to know what they're doing, what they're metabolizing, what they're sending out in terms of signals. So I think those are some of the, the major questions. So we currently have a grant proposal that's been funded through the Office of Naval Research that allows us to look at things like stable isotope probing so that we can start to understand what the microbes are producing, what they're consuming, and you know, in what quantities are they doing that. So it's more just who is there, but what are they doing? Because is it actually, sort of analogous to before you can understand the language, you sort of have to know the alphabet and the symbols, sort of figure out it's there, and then you figure out how they're put together to tell a story, to you know, make words and things like that. Right, exactly, exactly. Because I mean, you know, as we mentioned in our previous segment, I mean, there's trillions and trillions of these microbes. And as we know, as you know, just generally in, in physiology, there are lots of redundant mechanisms that keep the body going. And what we're finding is that, you know, the, the microbiota, the microbiome is very similar. There's lots of bugs that carry out very similar functions, potentially, but to know, for example, which ones are, are really in, important. A colleague of mine kind of called, calls these, you know, super important microbes a, a foundational build or a foundational species. This kind of like, you know, that, that system that kind of makes the forest grow, right? And, and um, attract the healthy microbes as opposed to the pathogenic ones and, and kind of 
promote this healthy environment for your gut because it seems that the gut is linked to so many now health-related outcomes. And this, as you're mentioning, understanding what they're they're doing and what they're secreting is we think that 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 mechanism by which, okay, you have these groups of microbes and they're doing this to then secrete that. And this is what makes, say, you um, protected from insulin resistance or heart disease or so forth. Yeah. And so, you know, there is a, a sort of a public literature of in, an, in, in industries built around, you know, microbiome of the gut health and, and stuff like that. And um, I mean, I would, I, I do want to go a little, a little bit more nerdy and reductionistic with you, but I'm going to take a step back in my own bread and ask some, some just people who might not be aware of, of these things. Why is, why are the micro microbes in the gut important? And you, you hinted on some of those things, but can you say it a little bit more directly? Sure. Why do we care about these things? Whereas, you know, 15, 20 years ago, people didn't care about them. Right, right. So microbes help us carry out functions that our body normally cannot do potentially. So the gut microbes, for example, I think one of the best examples, and, and it's one of the best examples also because we know complex carbohydrates are also healthy, right? So fibers, we know fibers cannot be digested in the small intestine, but they can be fermented by the bacteria in the colon to then become a short chain fatty acid, which helps make your your colon healthy. That can actually, um, that's a metabolite that can get released into um, the, the body to then have systemic effects. So these bacteria can really digest things that your body can't normally digest and produce these resulted metabolites, which then have or can have critical functions related to health. I so, think that's the best way to explain it. That's what when people first take a biology class, they, is, it, is this a form of what we call symbiotic interaction, it's, the symbiosis? Yes. Yes, so that's how we normally describe it. You are living in symbiosis with these microbes. You eat the things that they like, and then as a result, they give you things back, right? And we do say that you experience a dysbiosis when those microbes shift to potentially more pathogenic, and then you start to experience inflammation, and inflammation we know is linked to most of the chronic diseases. So that's that link that they think is occurring where the microbes become dysbiotic, promote inflammation, which we know is then a predecessor really for many chronic diseases. Right, and so if the microbes are going to be fueled uh, in a sense by what you eat, um, are the microbes, Sort of in a symbiotic relationship, like a, like a, a fungus or a lichen might be on a tree, where they're digesting where they live too. Um, so, I mean, so they get they get information from what you eat, but are they also getting what they need from human cells as well? Yes. So that's a great question. So actually, a whole other part of my research is actually looking at intestinal health. So we use um, immunohistochemistry. Um, fluorescent in situ hybridization and other techniques to take a look at that epithelial layer. And what's really cool about the colon is it has a very dense layer and a very loose layer. That dense layer is thought to be impenetrable, although there's some evidence to start to suggest that it's not so kind of stoic potentially as we thought. But that loose layer has lots of sugars and glycans and things. And that's where the microbes reside and kind of eat 
and you know um, interact. The idea is in some of these inflammatory-based diseases, those layers become thinner and thinner, and that's when the microbes can kind of penetrate into the epithelial layers of, of the colon and activate an immune and an inflammatory response. And there's such a large immune component in the gut, which and why they believe that the gut holds this key to systemic health. Yeah, and because the, the 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 key word in a lot of um, human ailments or even animal ailments is inflammation. And inflammation yeah. comes about not so much because of the microbes, but because of the host response to whatever the microbes is doing. Is that is that right. correct? And, yes. And, and what you described as a, you know a disruption of some of the layers of the, the, the gut linings is one of those things. Right. In fact, they think it's, a, you know, a, a large component. Um, things like um, Crohn's and ulcerative, uh, ulcerative colitis, they know that those layers are much thinner and allow those microbes, especially the pathogenic ones, to, to overactivate. I mean, I remember so specifically in 2009, two um, papers coming out about a fusobacterium that was associated with colon cancer. And, you know, I, I, I don't know that I naively believe that, you know, one microbe does all the bad things, right? A collection of trillions and trillions where we're just starting to understand the function of them. I think it's like an intricate community and overtly label one or two as, as you know, totally good or totally bad um, is difficult. There's a, a really excellent example of that one microbe that gets published a lot in metabolic literature as being when it's abundant, good metabolic health is called acromantia mucinophilia. Mucinophilia means it's a mucin lover. Mucin is that thick mucus that protects and has all the sugars and all that good stuff. We know, however, that an overabundance of that microbe is also seen in chronic um, gut inflammatory diseases because it degrades then the mucus and thins the layer. So you can't just label a microbe as good or bad. You know, it, it involves itself with the community and interacts itself with the host to then do what it's supposed to do, whether it be good or bad in whatever condition. And then the microbes also interact with each other. So they the do. Ratios of those different microbes are something that people look at too, not just like, as you mentioned, good or bad are sort of you know, qualitative things that we can judge them as, but they, they also interact with each other. They do. And, and that was the quorum sensing that I, you know, kind of brought up in that first segment. The quorum sensing is really the thought in, in which they communicate with each other and then regulate downstream, you know, DNA, transcription, translation related things. And, and that's, again, the belief and how they regulate things in the, in the system. And and, and you also mentioned and underlying some of the things that we're talking about here, and we started the segment about communication. Right. And that some of that communication you're, you're suggesting could be things that are secreted in the gut or sort of a humoral kind, but there also could be communication between your gut and other organs, including the brain and nervous system. Can right. you talk about a little bit about that stuff? Sure, sure. We know the gut and the brain is connected via the vagus, right? The and so nerve. the vagus nerve, yes. And so in, in really early animal studies, when that vagus nerve is kind of, you know, snipped, um, that communication is really blocked. And so 
Um, a lot of, you know, so that's one area. But then the other areas, again, we go back to these metabolites. A lot of the metabolites that end up getting um, secreted by the microbiome are potentially amino acid derivatives, but also potentially derivatives of the neurotransmitters. And so those neurotransmitters have the potential to cross the blood-brain barrier and potentially interact with, with mood. And there's, you know, we wrote a review a couple of years ago that we were talking about earlier um, before the show that, um, you know, microbes have been linked to, to mental health. And, you know, that's a really large area of, of interest for um, the microbiome and brain community to look at, you know, those relationships because of the way those metabolites can be produced. And, you know, we're, we are actually also looking at that. We just actually got some metabolite um, data back from the brains of some of our animals. So we're really excited. I have to send you an update on that. We're really excited to see what metabolites appear to be present in the brains of these animals. And I, I do want to hear more about the, the microbiome gut communication. Um, absolutely. But we have to take some underwriting, uh, break for underwriting announcements. We'll be right back. You are listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronx.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the Remote Bronx Studios with Dr. Sarah Campbell from the Department of Kinesiology Health at Rutgers University, where she is an associate professor. We are talking about her research about exercise, the gut microbiome, and health. And at the end of the last segment, we were beginning to talk about the communication between these different compartments of the body. And Dr. Campbell was talking about some of the research direction she's going in about how the nervous system monitors what's happening in the gut and actually responds to that. And she mentioned the vagus nerve, which is one of the cranial nerves that's both a sensory motor nerve that can respond to what's happening in the gut as well as send signals into the gut to modulate that. Um, and can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're, what's going on in your research? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's, it's always funny, you know, they always have these things, trust your gut, oh, your gut instincts and all those other things. I think that that's a very, as I've learned, you know, over the last couple of years, I think that's a very real thing between because of that communication between the brain and the gut. Um, and so some of the things that we've been doing is to look at the gut and how it might, uh, you know, communicate or interact with tissues outside of the intestine. So in particular, three tissues, brain, brown fat, and muscle. And so it's really interesting because we um, collaborate with the core center at our Cancer Institute of New Jersey, the Metabolomics Core. And the Metabolomics Core will take, you know, tissues of, of, of our, you know, sending based on what our proposal is paying us to do, right, and, and find out what these metabolites are. And so we're trying to do, you know, positive and negative polar and nonpolar metabolites so we can get the proteins and the carbohydrate and the fat derivatives and um, in, in somewhat of a targeted fashion so that we can understand what's being 
uh, secreted or what's present in these tissues. And, and we were mentioning right before the break that one of those tissues is the brain. And so we just had a conversation with our metabolomics core collaborators last week who sent us some data that my student and my PhD student who's working on this, Candice, um, and I are super excited to sit down this Friday after our lab meeting and really start going through and start and understanding what some of those metabolites are and do they match what we're seeing in terms of the metabolites from a, a fecal sample? How similar are they to metabolites that are in a brown fat sample? So, you know, you probably would expect there's probably some universal metabolites that try and get into all of the tissues, but we're hoping that there are some really unique ones that each tissue has that can kind of start providing us with some directions as to where we need to look next. Yeah, and, and the idea that it's currently being funded suggests that people, because it, whenever you influence the nervous system, you can influence mood, cognition, performance, bring it back to athletics. Right. And the answer is once you get in there, the behavior of an organism, human or animal, can be changed. Right, right. And I think that that's, again, a really exciting area that, again, as you suggested, you know, if there's money out there for people, you know, to obtain at, from a research perspective, it's really on that cutting edge of, of getting to the heart of what's going on. And, and really, you know, the, the whole idea is to have, you know, something help people. I mean, I, I truly get into this because it's exciting and I like to ask all these kinds of questions, but, you know, you know, you're a human at heart and want to help other people try and understand, you know, as a mom with, with kids who have mental health issues, you know, this is a really, you know, personal area for me and, and any breakthrough that, that we have, I, I could really apply at, at the level of my, ha my home. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a whole new way of looking at the old saying, you are what you eat. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, but to me, that even goes back to, you know, the whole exercise diet interaction, you know, there's some evidence to suggest sometimes when you, you know, when you exercise, there's one of, I think, two routes that people tend to go. One, they tend to, to compensate. Oh, I've exercised today, cheeseburger and fries. Right? right, as your reward. Or they go the opposite direction. Oh, I've exercised today. Now I have to be really careful about what I eat. I don't want to disrupt what I just did to myself, right? So there's this very interesting relationship between exercise then and diet, you know, that can then really influence because we know exercise can influence the microbiota independent of diet. So, right, absolutely. And, and that's part of the, actually, why don't you tell us more about that? How is it that exercise, which a lot of people who think of exercise, they think of skeletal muscle and they think of cardiovascular tone. How right. does that translate into what's happening in the GI tract? Right. So, so part of it is, is what I can say is it's been a lot of characterization up to this point. Like I said, the, the current fundings are allowing us to look a little more at the function but what we can say in terms of, of exercise and how that influences the gut is a couple of things. One, it consistently reduces inflammation in the intestine, which is a good thing, right? Because we said inflammation tends to um, kind of be linked with an immune response and this inflammation then is gonna, an immune response is potentially gonna lead to maybe a chronic disease per se, right? So exercise has that ability to reduce inflammation we know that systemically, but in the gut, now we see that through our histology. We see it in the small intestine, both proximal and distal. 
which is the you know duodenum versus the ileum, and then also in the colon. So we see a reduction in inflammation in all three tissues. And a lot of times this is even when the animals are fed either high or very high fat diets is that inflammation can be tempered, which is a good thing. The other thing we know with exercise is that multiple studies have shown really that butyrate becomes a key short chain fatty acid that's- One of the metabolites. Yes, one of the metabolites. Very good, we were talking about earlier. There you go. So butyrate concentrations tend to be higher in the, the gut. They, um, butyrate producing microbes tend to be more abundant in exercised animals and enzymes related to butyrate production also show higher levels of activity in exercised animals. So, you know, there's something to this butyrate, you know, and, and that's, that I think to, to me, that's a, a key factor because butyrate we know will help with uh, colon and colonocyte or colon cell health. It helps to proliferate. You bring up an, an important thing is that some microbes will make more of this, some of them will make less. And some people have talked about good microbes versus bad microbes. And you sort of addressed that earlier, but related to that is the idea of, you know, and prebiotic factors, probiotic factors that might influence what the microbes are doing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this is like the age old debate. The minute you start talking gut, uh, you know, the first question or the first thing people tell you when you talk gut is like, oh, I have GI issues. I'm like, thank you. That's lovely. And then the second thing, <laughs> the second thing is, you know, oh, what probiotic do you recommend? And so, first things first, the difference between a pre and a probiotic a prebiotic is something you're going to eat that provides kind of like a food source for the microbes. A probiotic is an actual microbe that you ingest, typically via a pill. There's probiotic type foods, yogurt, fermented foods. Those are the best um, examples of those. Um, and so there is no, and I always say, there's no evidence to suggest probiotics are um, deleterious or bad for your health in any way, shape or form, all right? I think that there's, um, a lack of understanding of, of how they work. And we know this because NIH has been calling for understanding the mechanisms by which probiotics work. I mean, it's literally in the title of one of their calls for proposals. So um, the prebiotics allow the microbes to be in their natural environment and digest and, and take those foodstuffs. Probiotics will actually feed that environment a particular microbe. You know. That's actually getting into, I mean, it, it's sort of sensational because it's weird, but it seems to work. That re is related to like the fecal transplant idea. That right. So, so, popular press. right. So, fecal transplants really actually only work with C. difficile, it seems. And even then, a lot of times you need repeated um, uh, FMTs to try and do that. Um, so, well, I think there was some initial excitement in some of that. I, I think some of the studies that we've reviewed in, in our lab and mm -hmm. so forth have, have shown that they maybe work initially, but your body kind of will a lot of times go back to that baseline microbiota that you established when you were like two or three years old. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And this would be a great uh, place for me to take a break, but I want to follow up on that last idea 
of how do people manipulate their gut microbiome to find that ideal state or is that just a product of advertising and that's right. of people trying to sell you stuff so i'm going to ask that question after we take a break for some underwriting announcements you're listening to health 411 on the 1077 the bronx and 1077 the bronx.com this is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077TheBronx.com. Welcome back to Health 411. I am Professor Jonathan Karp here with Mandy McLean and our guest, Dr. Sarah Campbell from Rutgers University's Department of Kinesiology and Health. Dr. Campbell studies the gut microbiome, exercise, and health. Um, and I promised at the end of the last segment that I would ask you this question, a question that you're probably, we we're touching on it, but I'm going to say it directly. You know, how do I optimize my gut microbiome? Is it by what I eat? Is it by exercise? Is it you know, some sort of colonic irrigation process. You know, how do I optimize my gut microbiome for health? Right. So that's a great question. I think parts of that are still being explored, but I think in general, I'm I'm going to be one of those very old-fashioned, you know, uh, exercise diet studiers and say it's about your lifestyle. It's about eating healthy. It's about taking a look at your plate and making sure that there are lots of vegetables and fiber. Your microbes love to digest that fiber. That fiber produces those healthy metabolites that are going to help reduce inflammation and promote systemic health and reduce chronic diseases. Exercise, we know, positively alters the microbiome in a way that helps to produce um, or manifest itself by butyrate production or butyrate microbes, which help keep the colon happy. I mean, exercise is a great way to prevent things like colon cancer. And that could be one of the reasons it does so, reduces inflammation, promotes butyrate. We know this isn't my area of expertise, but we've seen studies that suggest that adequate sleep promotes a, a healthier microbiota. You know, you talk about the pillars of health and wellness, right? You talk about in your sleep, you talk about eating healthy, you talk about um, exercising in, in uh, mental health. We already touched on that, you know, keeping good mental health, visiting your therapist, talking to somebody. All of these things can contribute to what you can do to optimize your personal microbiome. And I say that because really one third of the microbiome is um, similar between people, but two thirds is really unique to yourself. So that Third, you have that opportunity to engage in lifestyle factors that are going to promote that optimization. And this gut microbiome, it's not static, is it? It, it can change. You're not like born with it and stuck with it forever. Because, you know, everything from we've heard of Montezuma's Revenge kind right. of thing, which is a change to the microbiome, but there right. can be more permanent changes as well, correct? Or right. So it, it kind of, so, you know, this is the kind of thing where it gets a little bit um, tricky and why I recommend the whole lifestyle interaction. You do kind of settle into a microbiome that's gonna be yours at, at age two or three, mm -hmm. very young. But microbes- Just to, I'm gonna take a step back in time, excuse me for interrupting, but when you're born, where do you get those original microbes that 
populate your gut. So it's even before you're two or three, right. how do you populate a gut coming from a sterile environment in utero? Right. So that's a good question. So it really depends on the, the mode at which you're birthed. Mm -hmm. Vaginal birth, you tend to have microbes that are more similar to a gut microbiota. If you are cesarean section birth, you have microbes that are more similar to skin. So I actually just saw, and I wish I recalled the details, a study about cesarean sections because they've been trying to kind of, you know, do some sort of wipe for the baby or something else to try and help adjust that microbiota to make it similar as if they would, had been birthed vaginally. Then you go from, okay, were you breastfed versus bottle-fed? When did you get, you know, solid foods? Did you have an early life antibiotic exposure that could have altered those microbes? And, and so a lot of factors come into play, but really the mode of delivery is that first exposure to what microbiota you're going to have. And then, you know, what really will then alter the microbiota as an adult is aging is one thing, right? But it really is the chronic exposure to something. And that's why I say the lifestyle, right? Because exercise is supposed to be one of these things that you do every day. Eating right is something you should kind of do every day, right? You know, taking some time off or a bad meal here or there isn't going to cause a major variation, but it's kind of sticking to that healthy lifestyle that will promote a potential shift to that optimized microbiota. And a function of that is it if you live, you know, here in New Jersey and you decide to move to California somewhere, does that change your gut microbiome just as a function of where you are, the food you're eating and the microbes that are on it? Kind so yes, yeah, so that could, so, you know, there was an interesting study published a couple of years ago about indigenous tribes, you know, overseas, and their microbiota actually shifted with the season based on the harvest and what was available to them. So there are going to be regional differences in the microbiota. So if you, you were to pick up and move and that expose you to maybe different environmental factors and changed your diet as a result, because now you're in a different part of the country, that would facilitate a change in that that structure of your of your microbiome. Yeah, which is actually sort of cool because again, you know, people move for health reasons, and this is one of those reasons people might move. Not that I I, I would I don't think you would suggest move to a different part of the country <laughs> because of the, you know the prevalence of certain microbes that are <laughs> that are in the water supply there. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I would, again, I would argue though, even in a different part of the country, engaging in those lifestyle factors are still going to be critical to optimizing it regardless of where you are, right? Yeah, I would think so. And so a lot of us too um, take meds. How does like, especially as people encounter illnesses, moods, age, do, do those medicines that people take influence this microbiome in the gut that we're talking about? Right. So, you know, as someone who doesn't study this area, so let's qualify that, you know, you would have to assume that it either changes the microbiota or um, the way the microbes metabolize that drug might affect its systemic, um, you know, concentration, right? Well, how about, how about let's, let's pick a very specific drug, like antibiotics, right? right. Many of right. us have taken antibiotics. Um, could this, can the antibiotics not just kill the, like the microbes? If you have an infection somewhere, they'll kill right. that, but they also are killing microbes in the gut. And could that, right. could that cause sort of the dysbiosis and change mood, cognition, you know, performance, 
um, the benefits of exercise, all those sort of things. Concept is that something that people should be concerned about? Right. So we actually gave mice antibiotics and got tried to get them to run, and they had a seventy percent reduction in their ability to exercise. So exercise cool. tolerance. Yeah, so exercise tolerance definitely is reduced when or in the absence of a microbiota. So an intact microbiota is required for exercise. Now, many of the studies that looked at intake of, of antibiotics, really that microbiota is, you know, changed for a couple of weeks, but then will kind of get back to its original set point after you stop taking the antibiotics. So it does alter it temporarily, but not um, permanently. Is it would have to be a very extreme and prolonged course of antibiotics that might manifest itself in a more profound effect. So I don't think just, hey, you're got strep throat, you need antibiotics is going to, to alter it that much. But if, for example, you know, you're in some, you know, in the hospital for some reason and you need to be on IV antibiotics for a prolonged period of time, that might disrupt the microbiota more permanently. Um, uh, and, and we, many of us have been with people or ourselves have taken antibiotics and that are associated some with politely called gastrointestinal upset. Um, and that my guess would be that becomes because these, these drugs are disrupting your endogenous microbiome and the result is absence of water retention. <laughs> right. And GI distress, as we call it in the exercise world. <laughs> Absolutely. Can exercise um, help prevent some of that? Um, can exercise help? Or, or, is the, or is the effect of some of these drugs that people take just overwhelming? I think, you know, based on what, what I've seen and so anecdotally, a lot of times when I'm on antibiotics, so I had to be on some heavy dose antibiotics um, last summer. Um, and I did just didn't want to exercise. So you you were like the mice you described, right? I just you know, didn't want. It. And I think anecdotally, I think a lot of people who are on antibiotics or not feeling well probably don't want to exercise at that time either. Now, whether or not the fact that you're an exerciser helps to maybe offset some of those feelings during the antibiotic use is a very interesting question. That would be a, a nice study to look at, right? I mean, that's sort of what I was hinting at. It can the feel goodness of exercise, if you're right. a regular exerciser, overcome some of the, the, the behavioral consequences of dysbiosis? Right. So, so there is, so Dr. Uh, Jeff Woods, who's a, a colleague um, and um, also looks at the exercise microbiome, has at one point exercised animals and then transplanted the exercise bugs, as he called them, into animals that then he tried to uh, induce colitis. And the animals who had received the exercise poop, as he calls it, were largely prevented from some of the more extreme symptoms associated with the colitis. So, you know, it does tend to suggest that these exercise bugs might be able to be um, helpful. You know, the there's the big study, the marathon study that came out about the um, marathon uh, microbes associated with lactate um, uh, metabolism that have now become a probiotic. It's yeah. like, here's the marathon bug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but many of the stuff that you're suggesting has been done in laboratory animals. It's not ready for human use and human consumption, yet there is a, 
and I, we are sort of running short on time, so if you could succinctly, as a research scientist in this area, address the huge market and sort of the economics of this area that is emerging in this country and around the world. Right. So to your point, yes, most has been done in animals. There are some human studies that are similar to the animal ones, so that's awesome. The I would say the potential for the market slash say supplement industry to kind of latch on to the couple of microbes that seem to be, you know, overtly associated, Fecalibacterium prosnitzii is one of those, and that is already a, pro, a probiotic over the counter. So I think that that, you know, economic impact and the marketability of this area could be immense based on some of the findings, particularly if you do find, say, a handful of microbes that are linked to these, say, elite, you know, cyclists or marathon runners or sprinters that might be attractive. Yeah, you're, be you're being very careful in what you say, but what <laughs> I I'm going to come right out and say that I think okay. some of the marketers and the, the economics of it is way ahead of the science in terms of knowing what is real and what is not real what is scientifically verifiable and what is not. And you don't have to say anything because you're writing grants and you want to keep doing your research, but I'm going to put that out, I'm going to put that out there just, just as a thing, so thank you. Um, unfortunately, we are running out of time, Dr. Campbell. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Um, this is 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7thebronc.com from Ryder University Bronx Studios. This is Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has helped inform you about the interactions between exercise, the gut microbiome, and health. Again, thank you, Dr. Campbell. You've been a wonderful, very energetic guest, and I look forward to talking to you um, in the future. Thank you. Wonderful. Well. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure talking to you. Have a great day. That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.